paintings of the local artists displayed upon the corridors. I enjoyed the beauty of Rod's garden, a place of tranquility and reflection. And all around wards, there were references to the Spires Foundation raising money for the hospital. In one photograph, thousands of people lined up at Wilton House for a sponsored walk. And it reminded me of a 25-mile walk I did some 50 years ago. Keen and eager, we commenced our walk, some with more vigor and perhaps more enthusiasm than should have done so. Many raced off ahead. We walked through woods, paths, tracks, sometimes wondering if we were on the right track, enjoying the wildlife before scaring it away because of our noise. It was after a couple of miles that those in front paused for breath, and the main pack caught up with them. This is how Luke creates his story at the end of chapter 2. This book has got off to a flying start, but the extraordinary conversation between the risen Jesus and the apostles, and then the spectacular events of the day of Pentecost. Peter's address to the puzzled crowds, the first public statement about the good news about Jesus and his resurrection, and about God's rescue plan through him, was now fully in swing. Like all of us on that walk, full of energy, passion, possibility, and hope. And so at the end of the first Pentecost, we pause for breath to look around and see where we have got to. Luke is careful to point out the landmarks in Acts 2.42. It's been regarded as laying down the four marks of the church the apostles' teaching, the common life of those who believed, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. These four go together, and you cannot separate them. Leave one out? No. If you did, you would damage the whole thing. You see, where no attention is given to teaching, and to persistent, lifelong Christian learning, people quickly revert to their old ways, leaving Jesus as a pale influence or memory. We have all seen people on the journey, thinking that it's a race, only to fizzle out. Sadly, that is where Pentecostalism has got a bad reputation. Questions of, do you speak in tongues? Do you see pictures? Do you receive words of wisdom? Incite that if you don't, then you are a second-class Christian. That does not bring unity. That brings separation. Now, while I know others within the church, and even in our church leadership, differ on this, I can speak in tongues, but I use it for my private devotions. I've received a picture once. I've been given words of wisdom at times. However, our focus should not be on these gifts, but the four characteristics of a believer and nothing more. Where people ignore the common life 
of the Christian family, fellowship, they become isolated and find it nearly impossible to keep a living faith. Were people fair to share regularly the breaking of bread, they are failing to remember that Jesus' death and resurrection are the center of everything. And yet when people forget, if that is the right word, when they forget to pray, they are denying that Christians are supposed to be heaven and earth people. Prayer makes no sense unless heaven and earth are designed to be joined together and we can share in that already. Some of you here who grew up in Christian families with going to church as a habit of life might think this is quite humdrum and ordinary. And yes, in some churches, it can be like that. But imagine a world without teaching. Imagine a society where there is no common life built around a shared belief in Jesus. Imagine a world without bread breaking or a world without prayer. Life would be bleak. As it is for many people who live a secularist lifestyle shutting the door of any of these possibilities. However, if you lived in a world and suddenly found yourself swept up in this pattern of teaching, fellowship, bread-breaking, and prayer, you would know that a new dimension had opened up. And views of how the world might be had suddenly become visible. You would be awestruck. And that is what... Luke is saying at the beginning of verse 43. All that awe was only increased as the power of the Spirit was at work through the apostles, as it had been with Jesus, power to heal and transform people's lives. Now this new shared life quickly developed in one particular direction, which has been described as both fascinating and controversial. Christians lived as a single family. You see, when you all live under one roof, you don't see this chair, this block of cheese, this bottle of wine as mine. It's rather ours. But having said that, there is one uh, exception. Sweet and sour chicken balls, they're mine. The breadwinners in the house didn't see their earnings as theirs, but of the family. In the ancient world, this was often highlighted by members of a family all working in the same trade or business together. Joseph the carpenter, Jesus the carpenter. Let me just add in, they were also builders too, but that's not so widely talked about. They would have been the skilled stonemasons. In fact, there could be three generations, including cousins, working alongside each other, trusting one another, sharing a common purse, where people contributed and received what they needed. Many of you might remember the Jesus Army of the 90s. They adopted this policy. I remember talking to a doctor who lived in a dorm with other single men of various professions. His earnings were far greater than his roommates, but they all shared equally and had enough. Sadly, division came among the ranks of leadership, 
and a focus on spiritual gifts, which led to its demise. The early Christian impulse was to see that all things were shared equally. We are brothers and sisters. We are family. Our baptism, our shared faith, our fellowship at the breaking of bread, all this point to one direction. When the twelve, with their larger company of family and friends, in Luke 8, 1 to 3, were going about with Jesus, they had a common purse where various people contributed out of their resources and they behaved as a single family. But how do you continue to do so where there are seven, several thousand people joining the movement? The answer would be with difficulty, no doubt. But they were all determined to do it. Not to do it would deny something basic about who they were. At this point, there is no name for who they are other than the people that had been with Jesus, the people who bore witness to his resurrection, the people who were filled with the Holy Spirit, those who believed, and those who were being saved. I like the word rescued. Now, there's an area that often gets misinterpreted. It is said that they sold their houses. But if you look at verse 46, you will read that they still met in their homes. It was rather that they had a second home, so to say, through inheritance or land inherited that was sold. And they had a word for this way of life, a word that we use for feelings inside us, love. But the word they use for love in Greek is agape. A love which meant giving your possessions when you became part of this family. A love just is full of excitement and joy. It's more than just loving one another. It's a word that Paul uses in writing to the Thessalonians. But since they already love one another, they must do so more and more. I don't mean just have more feelings towards one another. But since they already care practically for each other, that they should work at making that more and more a reality. A challenge for the church today. However, when Jesus' followers behave like this, they can find a new spring in this step. There was an attractiveness and energy in life. But we need not cling onto anything we get but commence in sharing it, giving it away, and celebrating God's generosity by being generous ourselves. And that is one of the attractiveness that draws others in. They were praising God, saying, and stood in favor with the people. And day by day, the Lord was adding to their number those who were being rescued. You see, where the church finds itself stagnant, unattractive, boring, and shrinking, and sadly there are many churches like that in the Western world, it's time to read Acts 2, 42 to 47 again. Something I implore you 
to read on a regular basis. If we become stagnant, we need to get down on our knees and ask for forgiveness. Asking what isn't happening and should be happening. But the gospel's not changed. God's power has not diminished. People still need rescuing. So what are we going to do about it? In the second part of the reading of chapter 5, 1 to 11, in one of my commentaries, it's called Disaster. Now, I've spoken upon this passage in another talk. In fact, next week, I will be at Brown Street, Salisbury, sharing that story there. And I link it between Cain and Abel and what gifts they gave to God and also what Cain, sorry, what Ananias and Sapphira didn't give to God. The main emphasis on that story is, are we giving God our best or our least? That's a challenge for us. It has been recorded that Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian Baptist preacher, on one occasion he was preaching, he found himself denouncing someone in the congregation whom he didn't know. Words came into his mouth describing how this man was cheating his employer, stealing from him, and getting away with it. But Spurgeon found himself saying that this man should repent at once or he would be found out. Spurgeon was surprised and somewhat anxious. Where had this come from? What was he talking about? Why had it happened? But after the service, a young man approached him in great concern. Please, he said, don't tell my boss. I'll give it all back. The man repented and the situation was saved. Spurgeon was left pondering and wondering the strange reality that without asking for it or seeking it, he had been given a word of knowledge about someone he didn't know. You see, it's stories like that that help us understand more about Acts chapter 5. But they hardly make it any more easier for us today. Now, if Ananias and Sapphira were members of ABC and were confronted about their cheating and confessed and repented, we would be happy. If they would given the rest of their money they said they had already had, we would forgive them. And yet swift judgment falls upon them, a sort which is quite highly unusual in the Bible. It is often said that the real crooks who live healthy long lives get away with it. So what is the difference here? What is Luke trying to tell us in this situation? Part of it, part of what he's trying to tell us, whether we like it or not, is that the early Christian community, even without trying, was functioning something like the temple itself. It was a place of holiness, a holiness so dramatic and intense that every blemish was magnified. Remember how, when the ark was brought to Jerusalem in its first place, it was carried on an ox cart. Some of the guardians put their hands out to steady it when it wobbled was immediately struck dead. The temple itself contained warnings about people approaching who were unfit to do so. 
Gentiles were kept well out of it. Jewish women could only enter it as far as a certain part. And it was only the priests who could enter the Holy of Holies once a year. But prior to that, taking many precautions. This sense of dangerous holiness stems from some of Israel's ancient traditions, not just about the temple, but about the behavior of the whole community. Leviticus 10 tells the story of two sons of Aaron who breached the holiness of the sanctuary and suffered the consequences. Joshua 7 depicts a similar story to that of Ananias and Sapphira. Following the destruction of Jericho, a man named Achan takes some of the things that should have been devoted to the Lord. And when trouble hits the community, the church, as we would confirm it, he is found out. And swift and supernatural judgment falls upon him. We don't like these stories or that of Acts chapter 5. But we can't have it both ways. If we get excited, as the early church did, doing amazing healings, standing up to bullies, making multiple converts, by the way, it is assumed that those who were baptized on the day of Pentecost were actually baptized in the Jewish ritual cleansing pools that are just prior outside the gates, because there's no river that runs through Jerusalem. You see, if we live a life of giving, of sharing property in whatever way we see fit, then we should expect the living God to take us seriously. So if we are cheating God or lying, we will naturally summon the power of the Holy One, the one who will eventually right all wrongs and sort out all cheating and lying. Holiness is not an optional extra. We should keep every effort to remain pure and not allowing anything to defile our bodies or minds. Ananias did not have to lie. He could, had he wished, have sold the property, came back, kept back some of the money and said, I chose to give you this part. However, there is no way in hiding the fact that he lied. And the deep problem about lying is that you've got to tell another lie to back it up. In that instance, we stand at the intersection between heaven and earth, and we twist earth itself so that it serves our own interests. Lying, ultimately, is a way of saying that we don't like the world the way it is. It's like saying that we don't trust God, our Creator to look after his world and sort it out and set it right. So what is the lesson for us today? We must keep the four actions that was mentioned earlier at the beginning. The apostles' teaching. We all need to be here weekly to hear God's word shared through the pulpit. The teaching shared at home groups. The common life of those who believed. We need to have fellowship with each others. The best definition I've had of fellowship is a lot of fellows in a ship. That's what we should be doing. We should be in agreement with the church leadership and its teaching. The breaking of bread, reminding us that the sacrifice Jesus did 
was for us. We need to acknowledge our need for forgiveness and the prayers, not just our wish list, but that of doing God's will here in Amesbury and in our own individual lives. And remember, these four all go together. You cannot separate them or leave one out without damage to the whole thing. This is our task. This is our goal. And may we totally grasp the meaning of agape love for each other and our community.